Our sermon today is taken from Acts 3, 11 through 26. Here is the word of God. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, who you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets in the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Thus says the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back again after being away for a while. Today, we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Acts, and we are currently at the second half of chapter 3. Last week, we studied the first half of chapter 3, where we saw one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, perform the very first miracle ever performed in the New Testament by a disciple. And what we saw Peter did last week is that he made a lame man meaning a man who couldn't walk, to get up and walk. Now, a note that I think deserves some attention before we start. Some of you may read about miracles in the Bible, and you have absolutely no problem at all accepting them. And that's great. But there are some of us who may read about miracles in the Bible, and we cringe. We feel suspicious about them. If that is you, first of all, hear me say that you're not the only one out there. All right, depending on your past experiences, depending on the culture that you were exposed to growing up, depending on your predispositions, 
There can be many reasons of why you feel that way. And I don't want to overgeneralize here, but for the most part, if you grew up in a Western empirical culture, uh, meaning in a culture that for the most part says, unless I can see, touch, or feel something, it doesn't exist. If that's where you came out of, then things like miracles will sound completely ridiculous to you. And of course it would, because it's difficult to imagine the existence of an invisible, untouchable being who stands above nature and can bend natural law to his will. So, so you read about miracles in the Bible, and, and it seems implausible to you. But if you're from an Eastern culture, and you find yourself being suspicious to miracles, I think, for the most part, you're suspicious for a different reason. Because in most Eastern cultures, we have no problem accepting the fact that a God like that exists. But what I've heard most of us say is that we feel suspicious about miracles because they're often over-sensualized in our culture, especially in the church. Unfortunately, we've seen countless pastors and other spiritual leaders in our culture claim to do all these miracles, but you can't shake off this feeling that all these miracles seem to be done merely to wow the masses, or even at times worse for self-promotion. And you know, you don't want to entertain that thought because you don't want to be an overly critical person. But with the way it's being done, you just can't help but feel a little bit suspicious about it. So you come across miracles in the Bible and you find yourself being a little bit suspicious about them too. And, and that, that's understandable. But what we see here in Acts chapter three, it cuts through the presuppositions that both of these cultures have toward miracles. It cuts through many Western presumptions because it claims that there is a God who exists that can bend natural law to his will. But it also cuts through many norms we see in Eastern cultures because this miracle was very much done not to wow the masses or to promote the person doing it. Look at, look at verse 11. As soon as Peter performed this miracle, the people were wowed. It says, all the people utterly astounded ran together toward them. But Peter, instead of using this opportunity for self-promotion, look at what he said in verse 12. He said, why are you looking at me? Why are you staring at me? I didn't do this. It wasn't my power or piety that did this. In other words, it wasn't my ability or religiosity that did this. It wasn't me. But instead, what Peter did is he immediately pointed people's attention to the one who did do the miracle. And who is that? Jesus Christ. How does Peter use this miracle to point people to Christ through at least four steps, which will be our four points for today? First, by informing them about how they've misunderstood who Jesus is. Second, by rebuking them on why they misunderstand who Jesus is. Third, by showing them who the Old Testament claims Jesus is. And fourth, by surprising them with what'll happen when they believe in who Jesus is. All right, informing, rebuking, showing, surprising. Our first point, Peter introduces Christ to them by informing them that they've misunderstood who Jesus is. So. After Peter rejects any credit for this miracle in verse 12, in verse 13, he reveals to them who actually did it. This is what it says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob glorified his servant, Jesus. What Peter's saying here is that it was God's glorified servant, Jesus Christ, that made this layman walk. Now, you can just imagine at this point the look in people's faces. Jesus? Wasn't he the crazy guy who claimed to be God to overthrow Rome and he got crucified because of that a few months ago? Well, Peter continues in verse 14 to 15. That's your version of the story. 
he's saying. But your version is different than God's version. Look at verses 13 to 15 with me again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You see the contrast there? God glorified, or another way for saying resurrected Jesus Christ, but you denied him. Well, what Peter's trying to point out here is that there are two different versions of the story, guys. You all say Jesus is this mad person for claiming to be God, or this bad person who is intentionally lying about being God, so he denied him and he crucified him. But God claims he's telling the truth, so he glorified him. By the way, throughout the whole Bible, God never shares his glory with any other being, ever. But yet here Peter says, God glorifies Jesus. Now, wouldn't that be idolatry? Well, yes, it would be. Unless, of course, God is claiming that Jesus really is God himself in the flesh. You claim he's mad or bad. God claims he's telling the truth. Then in verse 14, another contrast, you denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life, but yet God raised him from the dead. You see, there's a disconnect here, guys. That's what Peter's saying. Who's right? Who's got the correct version of the story? Was he a mad or bad person and therefore must be rejected? Or was he telling the truth and therefore must be worshipped? Peter didn't really give him much middle ground to work with here. And look, I'm all about nuancing. I am. I'm all about finding the middle ground if, if you can. But it's really hard to do that with someone who's walking around claiming to be God. Which Jesus did all throughout the New Testament. Before Abraham, I am, he said. He couldn't have just been another prophet. Prophets don't claim to be God. He couldn't have just been another good moral or religious teacher because it's immoral and irreligious to claim to be God when you're not. He's either mad or bad, or he's telling the truth. That's why in the New Testament, people either absolutely worship Jesus or was appalled by him. What Peter's doing here is he's shedding light on the middle ground that people wish existed. And as uncomfortable as it may have been, Peter showed them that that comforting middle ground, it's merely a mirage that we've made up to make it easier for us to procrastinate in making a decision. It doesn't really exist. And look, I, I get it, I do. I understand why we want this middle ground to exist because who likes to be backed up into a corner? You know, who likes being forced to make a decision that they're not ready to make? So, so we look for outs. We prolong making the decision using this imaginary middle ground that maybe he's just a good teacher, maybe he's just a good prophet, you know, but you can't punt to that forever, Peter's saying here. At some point, you gotta make up your mind. Who is Jesus to you? Was he a madman? Was he a bad man? Or was he telling the truth? And for many people who were listening to Peter at the time, they believed in the first two options, and that's why they, they denied him. So what Peter does next is he goes even deeper and he reveals to them why it is that they deny Jesus, why it is that um, they have that version of the story, what's at the core of their denial and misunderstanding. Point two. Look at verse 17. Peter says, brothers, you acted in ignorance. Okay, so there it is. 
their issue is ignorance. That's why they deny Jesus. But we see later in verse 19 that it's a particular kind of ignorance. Peter says in verse 19, repent therefore and turn back. Now that's a little bit confusing to us, isn't it? Because usually when we think of ignorance, the solution isn't repentance. The solution to ignorance is more information, right? More data so that the person will be less ignorant. Repentance is the solution for a moral issue. But ignorance isn't a moral issue, it's a head issue. Well, I think what Peter is saying here is he's revealing to us that there is a kind of ignorance that's actually a moral issue. And the solution isn't more information, the solution is repentance. It may be helpful for us at this point to distinguish between two different types of ignorance. And, and, and stick with me here, I think this will help us clarify Peter's point. The first type of ignorance, let's call it informational ignorance. It's a kind of ignorance that can be solved by giving the person more information. So for example, a judge mistakenly ruled someone as guilty, but then later she gets more information and realized that the person was actually innocent. She judged wrongly. So based on this new information, she overruled her previous judgment and claims the person to be innocent. That's informational ignorance. Or a man who mistakenly fires his helper because he thought that she stole something from him, but then later on he gets more information and he saw the thing somewhere that he just actually just misplaced it. And because of that, he calls her up and apologizes to her and the problem's fixed, right? That's informational ignorance and it can be solved by giving the person more additional information. But there's another kind of ignorance Peter's saying here that goes deeper. Let's call it motivated ignorance. So imagine the judge that we just talked about earlier who wrongly accused someone as guilty got additional information about the man's innocence, but she refuses to go back on her previous ruling. She, she refuses to make this man innocent. Why? Not because she lacks information, but because by doing so, that'll make her look bad. You see, it'd make her look incompetent. So she's motivated to protect her reputation. So she sticks with her version of the story. And what she needs at that point is not more information. It's repentance. Or the man earlier who wrongly fired his helper for stealing later sees that actually he just misplaced the item somewhere in the house and it's not the helper's fault, but yet he refuses to apologize, right? He refuses to compensate her for doing nothing wrong. And he sticks with his version of the story. Why? Not because he lacks data, but because he's motivated to protect his own ego and pride. So he's sticking with his version. His version. You see, what he needs at that point is not more information. It's repentance. By the way, this usually happens a lot in the family unit. Uh, ever wonder why your spouse or your teenage kid or your parents stick to a version of a story so stubbornly, even though in your head you're confused because the data is pretty clearly pointing otherwise. And you're thinking to yourself, what world are they living in? Like, how are they not seeing this? So you give them more data, you give them more information, but they still won't budge. And you're so confused about why they're sticking to their version of the story, even though the data says otherwise. Well, most likely because it's not informational ignorance. It's motivated ignorance. There's something that they're protecting. Or maybe there's something that you and I are protecting. A particular narrative that we will protect at all cost, despite of what the data says. Because if this narrative isn't true, it reveals too much about me. 
it's too costly for me, it's too embarrassing for me, it's too painful for me. And, and some people will take this version of the story to their grave, even if it's wrong. They'd rather get divorced, they'd rather disown their children than change narratives. This is what Peter's telling the crowd. Your issue isn't informational ignorance that can be solved with just more data. It's motivated ignorance that can only be solved, verse 19 says, by repentance. You can't bear the possibility that Jesus was telling the truth. Because if his version of the story is true, if he really is God in the flesh, then you know what that means? That means the guy you nailed on a cross a few months ago was God himself. That means your natural spiritual compass is so utterly broken that you'd rather choose a murderer, Peter says in verse 14, over the author of life himself. And that narrative, that version of the story, is too painful for us. Because that story doesn't make us out to be the hero or even the victim. It makes us out to be the bad guys. So it can't be true. We won't let it be true. But that's the story. Peter's saying here, that's the story. It's been the story all along, even throughout the Old Testament, which leads us to a third point where Peter shows the people there that he's not making the story up. The Old Testament's been telling the story ever since the beginning. Look at verse 22. Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. A prophet like me, Moses says. How is Jesus like Moses? Well, what did Moses do? He took God's people out of slavery of Egypt to the promised land. What did Jesus do? He took God's people out of slavery of sin to the promised land, to heaven, to God's abode. That's the story. It's always been the story. Moses speaks of it. Then in verse 24, Peter continues, other prophets told it too. He specifically mentions Samuel Hill here. How does the prophet Samuel tell the story of Jesus Christ? Well, remember Samuel's role in the Old Testament was to inaugurate King David, right? The king of God's people in the Old Testament. But who is David really all about? Who is David meant to point to? To the true king of Israel, the true king of God's people, Jesus himself. Remember the prophet Jeremiah said that one day God will rise up a true king out of David's lineage, out of David's descendants. David was a shepherd before he was a king. Who is Jesus? If not our shepherd king. This is Moses' story. This is Samuel's story. This is all the prophet's story. But most importantly, this is God's story. Look at verse 25. Peter there reminds the people of a story in Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham that through your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Peter says that in verse 25. Now, how does that point to Jesus? Well, if you study that passage again in Genesis, grammatically, offspring there is in the singular, not the plural. So when God told Abraham that his offspring will be a blessing to the world, he wasn't referring to all of them. He was referring to one of them. And who is this one Israelite who's going to be a blessing to the world? I'm not making this up, Peter's saying. By the way, this story makes me look bad too. You know, who's the guy that denied Jesus three times before he was crucified? Me. It makes me look horrible, but it's the truth. It's written all over the empty tomb. It's written on the legs of this lame man who now walks. And it's been written all over the Old Testament. But we refuse to believe it. 
not because it's unreasonable, not because there are tons of empirical evidences stacked up against it. We refuse to believe it because we'd rather have a version of the story that makes Jesus out to be mad or bad rather than one that makes us out to be mad and bad. Repent. Repent and turn back to the true story. And when you do, there will be a surprising outcome, which leads us to our last point. What will happen when we have faith in who Jesus claims to be? See, when we hear the word repent today, I think our minds immediately think of the behavioral department, right? And, and don't get me wrong, repentance definitely includes a change of behavior. That's unquestionably in the Bible. But I think the kind of repentance Peter's talking about here in this particular passage isn't mainly a turning from bad behavior to good behavior, but is a turning around from having our own opinions about who Jesus is to having God's opinion of who Jesus is. It's a turning around from believing our version of the story to believing in God's version of the story. And when you do that, look at verse 26, Peter says, you'll be turned around from your wickedness. Now here's why I say this is surprising. Remember Sam's sermon last week? Remember the context of where all of this was happening? It was happening in the Jerusalem temple. Remember during a nationwide religious celebration. So this place that Peter was at was filled with a lot of people doing a lot of religious things. So picture this, you know, you go to the front of a religious place, a church or a temple or something, and there are tons of people there doing all kinds of religious stuff, and you say to them all, repent and turn back from your wickedness. And people look at you like you're crazy, because do you not see what we're doing here? Repent from what? No one's doing drugs, no one's committing adultery, no one's getting hammered drunk. What are we supposed to repent from? From your understanding of who Jesus is. Don't be fooled. You can be doing a lot of religious stuff and yet not believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. You can. In fact, some would even argue that if you don't believe Jesus is truly who he says he is, that actually make you do more religious stuff. Because if Jesus is in God, if he's been lying this whole time, if he's not truly the promised savior, then who is there left to atone for your sins but yourself? And that fear, it's led a lot of people to do a lot of religious things, not because they believe in Jesus is the savior, but because they believe that he isn't. So God, surprisingly, chooses to do this miracle in front of the most religious place at the time, and call all of these religious people to repent, not just from their behavior, but in their hearts, in their internal motivation to remain as the good guys by stubbornly sticking to their version of the story. That's what they're called to repent from. So for people who think they're the good guys, this is gonna be really, really hard to hear. You know how hard that is to do? Just in a human relationship level, it's hard to let go of the narrative that you've been holding on to your whole life. There's too much at stake. We've seen people willing to give their lives up to protect their version of the story. So for those who persist in curating a reality where they're the good guys, this is gonna be really hard and really terrible news. But for those who know they're not the good guys, for those who know that beyond a shadow of doubt, they're not who they should be. They're not who they even want to be oftentimes. They're flawed. They're cast down. 
This is unbelievably good news. Look, life has a way of making it clear that we're not the heroes, doesn't it? Whether it's something we did in the past, whether it's a struggle we can't seem to shake off today, whether it's a person we can't seem to ever forgive or love. Life has a way of making it clear that we're not the good guys, none of us are. And if you're listening to this today, and that's where you are, Christianity says that doesn't disqualify you from God. It's actually the very thing that can get you to Him. Because you have a beautiful Savior. You have a gentle and lowly King who loves you so much that from ages past, he's planned for there to one day be grand exchange, his life for yours, so that your sins may be blotted out. That's the story. If you're here today and you don't believe in the story, I hope you'd consider it plausible. But if you are here today and you do believe in the story with all of your heart, I hope this serves as a reminder of the good news that has come your way and that it returned to you the joy of your salvation and that you'd fall into deep worship and leap like the layman in, in this story who's praising God, his Savior, truly, authentically, passionately amidst all the dead religiosity that was going on around him. As we end the sermon today, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to invite all of you who are at home right now to do a dialogical responsive reading uh, of a psalm that I think captures the essence of our passage today, and that's Psalm 51. So what we'll do now is I'll close us in prayer, but then after I pray, uh, we're going to put this psalm up on the screen, and I'm going to read out loud the parts of the psalm that's in white, and if you could, please join me and read out loud the parts of the psalm that you see on the screen that's in red. Okay, so I'll read the white letters, you read the red letters. All right? Let me close in prayer. And then uh, if you could, after the prayer, join me and read responsibly Psalm chapter 51, verses 7 to 17. Let's pray. Father, all of us would hold on to our version of the story that makes, up, makes us out to look like the good guys. None of us want to admit that we have denied the author of life, that we've rejected the righteous one, the holy one, that we're so broken, our senses would not naturally be drawn toward you, but to reject you, to deny you. But Father, you've come down and you've pursued those who would rather kill you than be with you. We, that's, that's us all. And I pray that you would remind us of this story. Not only that, but by your spirit, include us in this story. That our sins may be washed and be forgiven, not in part, but the whole. On the cross, so that we would bear it no more. No one comes to the Father, but through him. Impress that upon our souls. Cause us to repent soften our hard hearts and do in the hearts of those listening to this today something no preacher can ever do give it life in jesus name we pray amen friends i'd like to invite us to read psalm 51
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. 